The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. I want you this morning to evaluate worship. I don't mean evaluate the worship service, all right? I don't mean comments in the suggestion box slash offering box, all right? I don't mean that. I mean I want you to evaluate worship. What is it? When we say we come here to worship God, what is it that we mean? What, what, what are we doing when we're here? What's the purpose of our gathering Sunday after Sunday? What, what are the goals, the objectives, the agenda? What, what is it that we're trying to accomplish in this room? With the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and the scriptures that we read and the sermons that we preach and all of those things, what are they supposed to do for us? I want you to evaluate worship like that. What is it? When you come here and you leave at the end of this, do you feel like, I have worshiped? today? And if so, why? What is it that you are looking for in a worship service? What is it that must be done in order for that thing that you just did to be considered a worship service of the living God? Our psalm this morning, Psalm 47, is a psalm of triumph. Last week we saw Psalm 46, It was a reminder of God's power. He says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. He says God is in the midst of His people. And that psalm ends with this promise that the results of His power that He has is that He will, as I just prayed, break the bow, shatter the spear, and make the wars cease to the ends of the earth. If you have your Bible opened, you're going to need it. Look at, the, look at Psalm 46 in verse 10. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's essentially how Psalm 46 ends. Here is a promise that because God is all-powerful, that He is the one who shatters the spear and makes the wars cease to the ends of the earth, He wants you, the one who worships Him, to be still and know that He is God. In other words, entrust yourself to His power, and the result of all that will be, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, Psalm 47 picks up where Psalm 46 ended. Psalm 47 picks up where Psalm 46 ended. In 46, there's this promise from God that He's going to be exalted among the nations. And it seems that this is the basis of His command be still. In other words, as we saw last week, fall limp. That, that's an utter surrender. Is just giving yourself over and trust completely 
in the sovereign hand of God to deliver you. In other words, sit still and watch as I demonstrate to my people immeasurable greatness and power when, as a result of all of these things, I am exalted among the nations. And when he says among the nations, that's the same word there for Gentiles. That means among all the world. I'm going to be exalted among the world. So all of this stuff that's going on, all of these wars and all of these things, you, faithful one, sit still and watch as all of this results in my exaltation and the worship of me among all the nations. Tracking? But what Psalm 46 leaves as a promise of a future world where God is um, exalted among the nations. Watch what Psalm 47 does and how it's different. Psalm 47 gives us a present reality. A present reality. He says this has already taken place. Look at what he says in verse 8. God reigns over the nations. Notice what he doesn't say. God will reign over the nations. That's how Psalm 46 is written. Psalm 47 isn't written like that. Psalm 47 says God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. And then even more, look at verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Verse 9, the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. You see how all of that is a present reality? God has already done this. And so now this is the present reality that we live in. It's really an extension of 46, but it's a far cry from 46. 46 is a promise that this is going to happen in the future. 47 presents it as already being done. This has already happened. So this psalm, Psalm 47, is a celebration in Israel's worshiping life. As they gather together to celebrate God, this is the content of their celebration. They're trusting that what Psalm 46 promises has really been done already in the mind of God. So they're, in a sense, taking it as a promise. Think about a time like when the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem. We're in, in the rest of the year, we are in 1st and 2nd Samuel. We've been studying 1st and 2nd Samuel. And more recently in 2nd Samuel chapter 6, we saw the Ark of the Covenant come into Jerusalem for the first time. And David celebrates there in front of his wife, and he embarrasses his wife, and his wife shames him for it. But he's celebrating and he's dancing the fact that the Ark of the Covenant, God's very presence, has come into Jerusalem. Or maybe think about a time where like the temple is finished in Solomon's day. It's, it's completed, and there's a time where the children of Israel gather around and they're, they're celebrating. It's a, it's a sign of hope that God is accomplishing all that He promised in Psalm 46. It's coming about. This is a a reality that we're now celebrating by His establishing His temple as a place of worship. Today, this this very day, Jews who still believe, at least in some parts of the Bible, will use Psalm 47 
as a celebration of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And essentially, Psalm 47 celebrates the sovereignty of God over the whole world. But you understand, for a, for a person who does not believe in Christ, this is a, still a promise. But you also understand, as you've seen in Psalm 47, that's not how it's written. It's not written as a promise. It's written as a present reality. It's written as something that has been accomplished by God already, isn't it? That's how it's written. That's how it's to be read. So the claims, like the ones I just read, He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. And the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. These claims of God's dominance over the nations they were never really experienced by the Jewish people. You get that? For, for, a, for a Jewish person, even seeing the kingdom of Solomon and David and even the splendor of all of them, they never experienced the real reality of what verse 3 and verse 9 of Psalm 47 are communicating. Do you see that? There never was a reality that they lived under fully. There were times when, of course, Solomon had demonstrated his power by conquering many and having rest from all his enemies on all sides, but it's not as though the enemies didn't exist any longer. They were still out there. They just recognized they didn't have the military might to go after Israel. There were times when the nations would send money to Israel's king, pay tribute to Israel's king. But that's not the scene that is depicted here in Psalm 47. You see that? The scene that's depicted are the princes of the peoples, that is, of the nations, the leaders of the nations, gather, look at what it says, as the people of the God of Abraham. You see that? The picture that's presented here is all of the nations and their leaders, they gather not against the Lord, but they gather together as if they are the peoples of the God of Abraham. They gather as His. That's not a reality Solomon ever lived under. Ever. That sounds like the nations have been converted into God's people, doesn't it? That's the way it's written. The best that the nation of Israel can claim when it comes to this psalm is that it's a promise of a future yet to come in which the nations are subdued under the feet of Israel's king. This psalm, as we look at it, is divided into two stanzas. The first stanza is from verses 1 to 7, and it shows God conquering and assuming the mantle of king over all the earth. And then the last stanza is from verses 8 to to nine, and it shows his ongoing rule. So you can imagine this scene, this sort of uh, movie playing out in front of you as you read this psalm, where God is on the march with his military, and he has conquered, in verses one to seven, he has conquered the foreign enemies, and he parades into town with his army, and all the people are in this ticker tape parade as they watch him ascend the mountain there in Jerusalem up to his throne, and is is headed up to the top, the tip top of the mountain. And then in verses 8 and 9, the symbol of his conquering is that he 
sits down on his throne. He has nothing left to do. He sits down on his throne, and there he begins to rule and reign over all that he has conquered. So that's the image that's playing out, the movie that's playing out in front of us. So as we look at that, we want to see those two stanzas play out. Look, first, we see that God has won the battle. Look at verses 1 to 7 here. It says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. I want you to start by thinking about this psalm from the perspective of a Jewish person who's celebrating her King who has gone out and conquered nations. He's won a military victory. And then look at the results in verse 3. He subdued peoples under us, nations under our feet. Now on the surface, you might think, especially from their perspective, that sounds terrible. He put nations under the feet of Israel He subdued them. It sounds like he killed all the nations. It sounded like he went out into military battle and he he slew all of them and he turned them away and he rejected them. He conquered them militarily. As if that's a bad thing for the nations and a victory for the Jews. In which case, if you read this psalm, you might read it like many psalms that promise victory for the people of Israel. Victory for Israel comes, in other words, at the expense of the rest of the nations, right? Either Israel wins or they win. In this case, Israel wins, and that means that the rest of the nations are thrown away, they're destitute, they're left out in the cold. You see a similar picture of this in Psalm 18, 46-47. It says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. You see that? Just just look at that verse for just a second. What does that communicate to you when you read it? It sounds like King David has gone out into battle against people who hated him, and God gave him vengeance over his enemies. He strangled them to death, and he killed them all. Right? Isn't that what that looks like? That's exactly what that looks like. That's exactly what David is saying. You gave me victory in battle. This is a triumphant military march. But this psalm is different, even though it uses very similar words. Notice in our psalm that the people here are subdued. Now the word can mean, as it does for David, driven out and killed and thrown away. 
But that's not the only meaning, and that's not the way he uses it here. The word is translated in verse 3, subdued, and the word subdue means to quiet, to bring to heal, to bring into submission. The nations in this psalm that are subdued are not killed, they're not crushed, they're not dragged, kicking and screaming into a yoke of chattel slavery. That's not the picture here. These are people whose opposition to God has been quieted. Who formerly were in opposition to God, who are now in submission to Him as King. Well, that's a different picture altogether, isn't it? The nations that are subdued are not killed. They've been quieted. So the kind of victory that God has won here is not one like what David has won, where he goes out into the world and he kills the people that are around him. The kind of victory that this psalm is actually promising that God will have over a people is one that has positive results for all of the nations of the world. And that's proved in the rest of the psalm. So I want you to see there are at least six promises or results that take place from the kind of victory that God has in this psalm. First, God's victory results in joy. Look at verse 1. God's victory results in joy. The psalmist tells, the, tells all the peoples, not just the Jewish peoples. You see that? It's directed to all the peoples. Clap your hands. All peoples, not just Jewish people. All people clap their hands and they shout to God. Why? Because He has won victory. So the promise that He has made in the previous psalm about being exalted among the nations, you see 47 says it's taken place. The nations are commanded now, clap your hands and shout for joy, all peoples, because God is King. Celebrate the fact that God has been victorious. And what do all peoples receive? They're all beneficiaries of His work, of His military victory, of His conquest of the people. All the people now are filled with Joy, it's a reason to shout in praise because he's won. But second, look at verse 2. God's victory results in fear. Now, you might say, fear? Joy in verse 1 and fear in verse 2 don't seem to go together. I don't relate joy with fear. Fear is not something that I love. If you're a kid and you're afraid of the dark, that's not a joyous time for you to be at, at home, in your bed, with the lights out, is it? So we don't associate fear and joy. So in our vocabulary, worship and fear don't normally go together, but that's probably because we don't understand worship. You can't worship what you don't fear. You can't worship, in other words, what you aren't in awe of. Whose power and authority and might you aren't impressed by. Do you understand that? 
It is impossible to worship someone or something that doesn't impress you. That at the core of you, you aren't a little bit afraid of. That you aren't impressed by their majesty and power and might. You can't worship something that you don't fear. Fear and joyous worship go hand in hand. But it's joyous. Why? Because the one who has conquered is good. That's the difference. You're afraid of the dark and you don't worship the dark. You're afraid of the dark because what might be in the dark? But your fear leads you to worship of God because he's good. Because he's conquered and he's made the wars to cease. Third, look at verse 3. God's victory results in a people for his own possession. Now we've talked about verse 3 a little bit, but the sense is not that the nations have been killed, but that they've been brought in, gathered amongst, counted in, and therefore are no longer a threat to God's people. They've been converted from being opposed to God's people to being on the same team as God's people. Fourth, look at verse 4. God's victory results in an inheritance for his people. He uses the phrase there, the pride of Jacob, or our heritage, which is shorthand for the land in which we dwell. In other words, what's being celebrated there is God has given us a dwelling, a place to live securely, a place where we can worship. A place that is forever secured. Fifth, look at verse 5. God's victory results in the exaltation of God among the nations. So having won the battle, His victory parade, or the psalmist says here, God has gone up, is with a shout of praise and the sound of a trumpet. So the whole world is coming together now, who have been won to God. The whole world is coming together now to clap their hands and play trumpets and shout because of the victory that he's won. Because he's worth the praise and adoration. Six, look at verses six and seven. God's victory results in ongoing praise. So this ends with this imperative for God's people to sing. Look at what he says, sing, sing praises to God because he's king of all the earth. His command now is because of all that God has done. Now sing. Now, I hope that as you've gone through this psalm, you've already started to see how a reading of this psalm without Jesus in place doesn't quite match what the text is saying. But, Putting Jesus in place, you can see how the New Testament Christian is reading this psalm. Not as a, a promise yet to come, but as a promise fulfilled. This is something that has come to take place and will take place in the full in the future. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has made a people for His own possession of every nation of the earth. He has brought people to worship the one true and living God in the person and work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He has made a people for His own possession of every nation, of every language, and every tongue. In the way the psalmist puts it, 
He has subdued the nations under the feet of Israel. All right. Now, that sounds really weird, probably. Subdued us under the feet of the nation of Israel? How are we, Americans, Westerners, subdued under the feet of the nation of Israel like the psalm says? Sounds weird if you've never thought of it that way. Let me say it another way. You and I gather on Sundays for the purpose of paying tribute to the king of the Jews. You and I are gathered here right now on Sunday morning to pay tribute to the king of the Jews who is the rightful heir to the throne of David. You understand that? It's a strange thought. But we are right now worshiping a resurrected king who is, by definition, David's heir and the rightful king of the Jews. And by his resurrection, he has become king of the world. So we're put under their feet. Strange, isn't it? But the Apostle Paul opens the book of Romans like this. And I want you to see this in Romans. Look at this. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now why does Paul go into that whole bit about him being descended from David? Who really cares about that? If you're writing to a crowd who is maybe mixed Jew and Gentile, but a lot of Gentiles there in Rome, if you're writing to that crowd, why don't you leave that out? Who really cares about that? doesn't mean anything to me. And just tell me the gospel. He rose from the dead. He for, he's there for forgiveness of sin. Why do you include the whole bit about him being descended from David? Paul is recognizing that Jesus' kingdom is testified in the Scriptures, and the Scriptures in the Old Testament testify that the one who would raise from the dead, who would be your Savior and Messiah, is rightful heir to David's throne. That he's Jewish. And that it testifies to the truth of the Scripture and to the truth of the resurrection of Christ that he really is your Messiah and Lord, that not only is he descended from David and he's a rightful heir to the Jewish throne, but then God proclaimed him son and, and validated all of his claims to be God by raising him from the dead on the third day. Newsflash. That didn't happen to anybody else. David died and his bones are still in the grave. But Jesus said, I'm the son of God. 
I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And they killed him because he claimed to be God. But on the third day, God said, what he told you was true. That was right. And rose him from the dead. So he has subdued his people under his name and under this throne. That's not just king of Israel, but also king of the world. So really, the Bible is one long story about this feat right here that God has performed. The Old Testament is exposing the need for God to supply a king who will not sin, who will be king not just of Israel, but king of all of his people. And then the rest of the New Testament is talking about how Jesus is that king and how you owe your worship to him. So God ruling and reigning the people that he created, coming to adore him as God and give him praise. The entire Bible is telling you Christ has done this and it's telling you that is worship. Coming under King Jesus and celebrating the fact that he has risen from the dead and that he is on the throne is the essence of what worship is about. The Bible, in other words, is not primarily about you. Uh-oh. It's about Jesus Christ and what He has done. And then, how? You, if you are His people, are blessed because of what He has done. So the focus is on Christ in our worship. Now here's what we often don't understand. The worship that we bring Sunday after Sunday is tribute to a king who has been raised from the dead. So when you read this psalm that's sitting in front of you, Clap your hands, all peoples. It's not just a command. It's defining what worship is for us. It is tribute. It is awe. It is reverence of Christ who is resurrected from the dead. Sunday morning worship is many things. But first and foremost, it is a joyous offering, a tribute to the God who made us, who sustains us, who saved us, and who secured us by the blood of His Son. That's what it is. So however you're tempted to define worship at the beginning, this psalm is meant to correct you and reform your way of thinking. Worship is, first and foremost, a joyous offering, a tribute to a king whom you serve as his servant. But in our churches today, and maybe for many in this church, worship is, one, optional, and two, stale. Optional, 
and stale. It's optional in the sense that if we have virtually any other option than coming together with a church body to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, we'll take it. If any other option is out there, anything, we'll take it. I'm not even just talking about vacations. I'm talking about everything. Our kids' activities. Well, we got this and we got that. We got the other. We'll be out next eight weeks. What does that tell your kids about the purpose of worship? It's just a box we check. That's it. And if I check it once every eight weeks, fine. No one's going back over the records anyway. It's just a box. Going to bed late on Saturday because I need some sleep. Precious beauty rest. That's a reason. It's optional. Students frequently have heard every excuse. Oh, I gotta study. There's so much stuff I've gotta do. I gotta get this report in on Monday, and I got all these things. Literally, every option in the world takes precedence over the worship of Jesus because he only did as much as saving you from hell. I mean, it's just that. What do you call a person who uses all those excuses on Monday? Unemployed. That's what you call them. But in the church, for whatever reason, we call them Christians. How? Why? Our places of employment have a stricter level of accountability than our churches do. That's insane. Worship in the church is stale because for so many, the performance of the musicians takes priority over the words that are expressed in the songs themselves. People will flock to churches and they'll comment after they leave, Oh my goodness, the music was so moving. It's unbelievable how well they play their instruments and all of the things that they do on stage. It just moves me to my core. Gives me chills. But we never stop and think. If it's about my body being moved by the musicians that are on stage, aren't I the object of the worship? Aren't I worshiping my own emotions? Question, can worship actually happen if I feel distant, yes. When a king parades down the street, let's say a good king, a king everybody loves and everybody celebrates. Are you paying tribute if you are there singing praises? Are you paying tribute if you're home watching TV? Tribute 
is presence. It's not about my emotions being stirred. It's not about, as they used to say back in the 90s, the quiver in the liver. You heard that phrase? The goosebumps that I get when the violinist plays the solo. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a violinist play the solo. Trumpets, cymbals, all those things are fine. But they don't define worship for us. What defines worship is tribute and joyous praise because Christ has risen from the dead. But you can tell it's stale in a room where there's a song like something beautiful, like afflicted saint to Christ draw near. I'm not pointing out anybody in particular or anything like that. I'm just saying. We sung that song earlier. And you can tell when there's a stale air in the room, when people are singing the, the words, so sing with joy, afflicted one, like this. So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. Is that joy? I know, I get it. Men we got to lead in this. And most men will tell you, yeah, I'm just not that person. I'm just not that exuberant or excited. Unless Alabama scores a touchdown at the last minute. And then we see a whole new side of you. All of a sudden. Otherwise, you know, I just don't feel it. Let, let me ask you something. If your whole marriage, you went through your whole marriage and you never looked your wife in the eyes and told her, I love you. And you just said to her, I mean, I just don't say those kinds of things because I just, I'm not that kind of person. And you said to her, I love you. Would she believe you? Or would you be sleeping on the couch? So why do we think that we should come into a place with the body together to sing praises to the Christ who saved us by His grace and His mercy, by His blood on the cross, who died and who rose again? And the most we can muster is to so sing the joy afflicted one, battles fierce of victory. optional and stale and I'll put a lot of that on the squarely on the shoulders of men who for whatever reason failing to lead our families in a joyous celebration of the Lord it's not what the psalmist is calling for what he calls for is, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Worship is tribute to the king of the universe who saved you from the pit of hell. So what kind of expression is fitting for that? See, worship is a joyous tribute to the Savior that gave us eternal life. Second, we're going to do this really quick, okay? So don't, don't be like, he's just now on the second point. No, it's fast, okay? Promise God ascended to his throne and is right now ruling. 
It says God reigns over the nations in verse 8. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. See, Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He also ascended to the right hand of the Father and He is right now in the process of doing all the assembling of the princes of all the nations to come under His his rule and His reign as they hear the Gospel, as they profess faith in Christ, and as they come to join in the chorus of praise of Him being King. When you come to Jesus, you're not merely coming to someone who is your personal Savior. We say that sometimes. That's, it's not probably the best description. Like he's pocket size and he fits right there. And as you travel, he's right there with you and he, you can pull him out and you can put him on the, the shelf and you can put him back in your pocket wherever you go. It's not a personal savior like that. He is a Lord and King. You're coming to give him honor and praise and joy and tribute because he's personally saved you. But he's also making a global people into one singular body under his cross. He is secured for them an eternity in heaven, an eternal dwelling, just as the psalmist mentions here. Now, let me ask you, is that worth celebrating joyously? Is that worth worshiping? Some of us, I think, maybe we kind of say yes. But then we might, in this singing, get the urge to raise our hands and we go, mm, this is a Baptist church. We don't do that here. Why? Oh, get back in there, tear. Mm. Why? Don't say amen, don't clap. This is a Baptist church. Why? Is it a joyous celebration of a resurrected king or is it not? What should our faces look like? What should our bodies look like? What should we do in worship because we're praising the king who saved us? So my question then, if that is worship, a joyous celebration, tribute to the resurrected Christ, then what is robbing you from the joy of celebrating the kingship of Christ in worship? What is it right now that is in between you and Him? Worshiping Him truly. Loving Him dearly. Celebrating Him thoroughly. Is it sin? Then you need to understand that He conquered sin and death. That on the cross... All of your sins were future to Him. You get that? All of your sins were in the future. It's not like He died for part of these sins that were in His past, but then the rest of the ones in the future, you're on your own. All of your sins were in His future when He died. And He knew all of them, and He died for all of them. So what do I do? Repent of them. Confess them to Him. And because of the forgiveness that you have, now celebrate the fact that He's forgiven you. Is it unbelief? Just don't believe it. 
Let, let, me, let me ask you, have you ever doubted your doubts? So you doubt Jesus. Have you ever doubted the doubts you have of Jesus? Maybe, just maybe, you should read some of the great apologists of our world. C.S. Lewis. Others. They give proof and evidence of the resurrection. Maybe you should investigate the veracity, the truth of the resurrection. And just see if all of your doubts can withstand scrutiny of the proof of the resurrection. Maybe it's your present circumstances. Whatever they may be. Family issues. Sadness. Depression. Sorrow of all kinds that are out there. Do you understand what this psalm and the psalm before it is saying? The God that we're worshiping is sovereign. He breaks the bow. He bends the spears. He, he causes wars to cease. Do you understand what that actually means for your present circumstance? That doesn't just mean that your circumstance that you're wallowing in and that you hate right now or that you come to loathe or that it makes you sad or sorrowful or depressed those, those sorrows are not just happenstance. They're not just things that have happened to you and God is up there going, yeah, I'm sovereign, but I, I really can't do anything about it. No, it's saying, I have intention for those. All of those things that you're in, they matter to me and I have designed them for a reason. And in the hearts of my people, in the lives of my people, I am going to bring the, about your good out of those situations. You're not there for no reason. He's brought you to that place. So it's cause for celebration. Even if that celebration is a trust of who he will prove himself to be to you over time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us hearts and minds who love you, who celebrate the fact that you have risen from the dead, that you have called us a people of your own possession. I pray that you would give us hearts of praise who sing out praises and adoration to you. I pray that you would make us a people who desire to come together and celebrate the resurrection of Christ Sunday after Sunday. We don't want to be a people whose membership resides at Emmanuel, but whose bodies reside at home on Sunday morning. We want to be a people who are here, regardless of circumstance, celebrating the fact that Christ has saved us. Make us that people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.